0: From Guelph, Ontario, this is The Smart Seed, and I am Leanne Shagan. I'm indifferent. I guess that is the best word I have, and surely it can be argued that this is the worst type of being. To have no passion, no hate, no love, no opinion of one thing or another to simply be uninterested. So much so that you care not to know. Actually, there is no care. It just is what it is. I am rarely indifferent. Throw a topic out there and some type of emotion will wither its way out of me. Climate change, United States foreign policy, NAFTA negotiations, tax reform, the supply management system, French-only signs in Quebec's national parks, and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Oh yes, there is deep hatred for that one. If you name it, I can definitely sort out an opinion. I can state ever so matter-of-factly that there is no greater indifference than the indifference that US sports broadcasters on ESPN or TNT have towards the Toronto Raptors. To be upfront, NBA basketball and the Toronto Raptors is my primary form of escapism. For a year now, I have fully committed myself to being a true and knowledgeable fan. Last year, I rarely missed a game. I kept the computer on while they went through that dreadful stretch from February to March. I learned to appreciate as they fell behind by 20 points and then pushed out the young guys to try to provide a spark. Sure, there's Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, but I was interested in the folks on the bench, like DeLon Wright, Pascal Siakam, Jakob Pertle, and Fred VanVleet. Instead of paying the exorbitant prices to watch a Raptors game, we hung around young families and watched a D-League game in Mississauga. I started watching interviews with the players, the general manager, Masai Yuri, and the coach, Dwayne Casey. I stayed up to date during the offseason, keeping track of who was being traded to whom and the implications those trades and others had on the league itself. Through all this time, I realized one thing. The U.S. was indifferent to the Raptors. I would watch Inside the NBA on TNT with Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, Ernie Johnson, and Shaquille O'Neal. Whether it be through the regular or postseason, the Raptors were just a footnote, an obligatory mention. They would spend more time, much more time, talking about teams who weren't nearly as good or consequential to the season itself. And when they did mention the Raptors, they only ever talked about DeRozan and Lowry, as if they were the only two on the team. Frankly, I think if you asked them to name the Raptors roster, they would only know perhaps four or five players. Yesterday, I listened to an in-depth conversation with Masai on the U.S.-based Bill Simmons podcast. Simmons spent most of the interview asking the Raptors general manager to comment on players outside of the Raptors franchise. And then near the end, Masai asked, Have you ever visited Toronto? Simmons responded, Uh, no, I haven't. And perhaps that is at the crux of the indifference. Sports teams are so often wrapped up in the cultural identity of the city. What is Regina without the Roughriders, or Montreal without the Canadians? or vice versa, if you do not know the city, then perhaps it's harder to care about the team. If we do not attempt to create a relationship, if we do not ask the question, why should we care, then what are we missing by choosing to not know? Which brings us to this week's episode, the indifference to an always has been, but shouldn't be humble liquid. When its use is often so industrial and so woven in the fabric of our everyday, we can often take it for granted. Even more so, it can be denigrated, its value no longer appreciated, because we do not know what it was like to not have it. I believe that this is such a case, so much so that I wish not even to say the word, because that alone would make it appear unworthy of our time and attention. So let's not say what it is we are talking about. Instead, let's be introduced to it as if we had never encountered it before. The process of fermentation can often feel new. In recent years, we've been introduced on a corporate scale to products that have come to us from elsewhere, products like kombucha or kefir. Yet there is nothing new about fermentation. I'm sure we could travel to all the nooks and crannies of the earth and find this process of transformation and preservation in use. Fermentation is the process which creates our cheese, yogurt, beer, wine, kimchi, sauerkraut, chocolate, and sourdough, minuscule bacteria that work to transition something into something better, often elevating the flavors to a place of reverence. In this case, there are two fermentations two transformations that take place to create one of the most versatile and multi-dimensional liquids. The first transition is called alcoholic fermentation. It takes about three weeks for sugar to be depleted and converted into ethanol with the aid of little strains of yeast. The second transition is called acidous fermentation in which acidic acid bacteria oxidize ethanol into acidic acid. One of the oldest techniques to create this liquid is called the Orlean's method. In this method, fermented fruit juice would be placed in one vessel for a week and then passed through to another vessel where the acidous fermentation would occur. The fermentation only occurs at the surface where there is enough dissolved oxygen to ensure the conversion. The second transition is a slow process and can last between eight to 14 weeks. It is a complex chemical reaction that absurdly occurred by happenstance. The earliest known uses were almost all clinical in nature, most definitely because of its antimicrobial properties, a result of the presence of acidic acid. In ancient Greece, Hippocrates recommended it for cleaning ulcerations and treating sores. In the 8th century, samurai warriors in Japan used it as a tonic for they believed it to give them power and strength. In the 10th century, it was used in China along with sulfur to prevent infection. In the United States in the 18th century, it was used to treat poison ivy, croup, stomach ache, and high fever. It was a cure for all, used for yourself and your home. As new, quicker methods were created, it became a fixture in the mass production of food. Added to season and preserve, you could find it in our salad dressings, ketchups, canned foods, and sauces. What variant you used depended on where you lived. In Southeast Asia, it could be from coconuts. In Japan, from rice. In Austria, from fruits in Italy from grapes, in the United States from grain. The multitude of variants led to different uses. Some were seen as more culinary in nature, some medicinal, and yet others industrial. It could either be bought in small expensive bottles or absurdly cheap four liter plastic containers. The different forms it took, the different uses it had affected how we saw it. Regardless of how it was bottled and how it was presented to us, Other than perhaps in a few small, enlightened groups, it has never received the reverence given to other fermented products. We do not gently breathe it in or watch the foam form as it pours or appreciate its different flavor profiles. It just is what it is, what it always has been regardless of what it has offered. In French, it is called le vinaigre, which was derived from the words vinaigre, which means sour wine. We call it vinegar. Thank you to the Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive for their musical contributions. Links to my resource material can be found on my website, www.thesmartseed.ca I would love to hear from you. If you like what you're hearing, let me know. If you love it, then please share it on your social media platforms. If you hate it, well, I guess you can tell me, but please be kind. That's all for now. Stay curious, my friends.